0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Hi, I'm Christian Sager. Last week, uh, we lost uh, several key individuals. Uh, Yeah. Oliver Sacks died. uh, Wayne Dyer also passed away.
0: Yeah, I wasn't familiar with that until you sent it to me. Yeah. Because I I was... uh, inundated with stuff about oliver sax rightly so and when we posted that on our social media accounts it kind of went uh i guess the kids
1: call it viral yeah <laughs> but then uh rule of three which yeah. right, isn't really a thing it's all about our observation of uh events happening but uh in this case we did get a big number three
0: yeah unfortunately wes craven passed away uh on i believe it was sunday night Uh, probably Sunday afternoon his time, uh, but I I was unaware of this, as probably most of the public was, but he was battling with cancer. He had um, brain cancer?
1: Yeah, brain cancer. Um, Yeah. This, which uh, yeah I don't think that had been uh, public uh, knowledge yet but yeah uh,
0: well it's really unfortunate um, because you know as as many of you out there know Robert Joe and I are, are big horror fans uh, we grew up watching Les Craven movies I'd say that they were probably more than a little responsible for my <laughs> weird <laughs> idea of how high school was
1: going to go <laughs> yeah yeah that like even if you didn't see any of the Craven films and I have to admit for a long time I didn't see them oh yeah but even then you'd go into the video stores and there's Freddy Krueger on the wall like you know a thousand feet high like the, yeah. the cultural resonance of of his work was just unavoidable uh, in the uh, the 80s and 90s
0: everybody knows who Freddy Krueger is even if they've mm-hmm. never seen any of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies i would i would have to think right yeah. they, they at least know that he's that guy from those slasher movies or yeah whatever. he's a,
1: an american cultural icon arguably an international cultural icon
0: I yeah mean. i agree in fact when i lived in singapore as a kid that was when i saw the nightmare on elm street 3d edition and it was very big over there
1: oh i thought you're gonna because i know there are various like there's an
0: indian oh um, is there there's like an iteration like film yeah. yeah no we used to buy um bootleg
1: versions of movies <laughs> over there uh and uh that was i, I had the 3d one so, in looking through his filmography, I, I kept seeing films that, oh, well, I never saw that, but it was everywhere, and I feel yeah. like I, I feel like I've seen it. Uh, other times, it would be a film, you know, like Swamp Thing, where I, <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed it as a kid, but later yeah. on, I realized there was more to the comic. So, I, yeah. I don't know that I really love any particularly. So I don't know that I actually am in love with any particular Wes Craven film, but uh, my world wouldn't be the same without him.
0: Yeah, I felt the same way exactly, that he definitely put a stamp on Mm -hmm. the horror genre, but at the same time, I don't know that I would... Except for the movie we're going to talk about today, which I have a personal uh, fascination with, I don't know necessarily that any of his movies were classics for me. Mm -hmm. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street is a interesting story uh, and, and clearly grabbed the attention of, of uh, the world when it came out and however many sequels there were. Uh-huh. But I don't know that I would put it in like my top 10 horror movies of all time, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, and I, I generally anger the world by it. Saying that I actually liked the remake more than the. the I like the remake yeah. too.
0: Yeah, I saw that in the theater, and i I thought it was uh pretty well done. Yeah. Um, and uh, I laughed out loud at the kid wearing the Joy Division shirt. That was the only part in the movie oh, where I, I think I like I broke character from watching a a horror movie. Uh There's just like, you know, this teenager. When was that movie? Like 2013 or something like that? It it was relatively recent, Mm -hmm. and this kid was wearing a Joy Division shirt to signify how gothy and and, uh, dark he was.
1: Well, you know, I don't know. I I, I bought it. it.
0: Yeah, but I, I would buy it if it was set in the 70s or mm-hmm. 80s and he was wearing a Joy Division. Okay. So, yeah, I don't I don't, know. I don't
1: really know how, much, how into Joy Division the kids are these days. It,
0: but. That could be me as well, yeah. right? That With all these biopics about Ian Curtis and stuff, maybe they're <laughs> a lot more popular than I think they are.
1: You know, anyway, it, yeah. it, it turned out, though, that Craven, uh, you know, there's a lot more to him than just the horror films. Um, yeah, he's a fascinating guy. Yeah, he earned a master's in philosophy and writing from John Hopkins. Uh and after a brief stints in academia, he had, he returned to the movie industry, started out as a sound editor. Uh, I think he worked under a pseudonym on an adult picture at one uh,
0: More than one. That was oh, yeah. what I was reading. Yeah, apparently he did a, a lot of work in a pornography. I think mostly as like a sound editor, maybe uh-huh. doing some directing work. But I believe that there's a documentary about the infamous Deep Throat movie, and mm-hmm. he had some involvement with that, though
1: he won't reveal what it was. Okay, but, but probably on the technical side. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, but, yeah, fascinating guy. He, I mean, he worked his way up the ladder in academia, taught for a while, uh, and then just dropped everything because he had an opportunity for to do film. And, you know, you see why after you look mm-hmm. at the bulk of work for his career. I mean, he really put his... All into it,
1: yeah. Uh, Twenty nine films that he directed. That's not getting into stuff that he produced. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, he was a successful filmmaker, uh, and that's, I mean, it's especially commercially. Like even the film we're going to talk about today, despite some of the problems, it had you know it worked with the critics and it uh, brought in a profit. Yeah,
0: certainly. And he, um, you know, especially when you think about like, I think it was like sort of the seventies was when he was doing that work with adult films, mm-hmm. and then his first real like horror film was Last House on the Left, I believe. I believe so, yeah. And that is a movie, first of all, that is a movie that is, I think, would probably be in most people's top 25, top 50 horror movies of all time, Mm -hmm. at least in terms of the gruesome impact that it had on the industry.
1: Yeah, and so kind of an infamous video nasty.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And he just came right out of the gate with that and then was so successful, he just rolled into making one successful movie after another, you know. Um, Last House on the Left, whew, that is a movie that uh, really is upsetting to watch. Um, I... As a horror fan, um, sort of forced myself to watch both that and, uh, the movie I Spit
1: on Your Grave. Have you uh, seen that? No, they're both two films that I know, I know what's up in them and I, yeah. I'm just not my cup of tea. It is not for me either, mm-hmm. but I felt
0: like I should understand why it wasn't for me uh-huh. and they are really, really difficult to watch. But, um, uh, I'm, I have not seen it but the remake of last house on the left came out a couple years ago and i'm kind of curious about that because it had this very strange cast Mm -hmm. for the plot of the movie people who you wouldn't expect to do that kind of thing like um uh, the kid from breaking bad was was in oh yeah um what's his name aaron something i can't remember his name now but um and uh Garrett Dillahunt, you know that guy? Mm-hmm. He's in it as well. And and uh Ricky Lindholm, and I was just like, Wow, this is the strangest <laughs> group of people to put together to remake this utterly like trashy horror film, you yeah. know? Um, so I'm curious about it. Uh, another one that I've always really <laughs> thought it was kind of funny is Deadly Blessing. Have you ever seen that one?
1: Oh, I, I don't think I've seen this one. I read about it. A it's
0: another bit. one of his early ones. Mm-hmm. It's, I can't remember if they're Quakers or Amish or if it's just like a fictional version of, of that kind of religious, uh, mm-hmm. community. But they're, it's a horror film set within that kind of community, probably early 80s. Um and it's, Uh, Just utterly bizarre and kind of silly in some spaces. I think that's something you could say about almost all of Wes Craven's films is that they have a sort of sense of self-awareness
1: that is making fun of themselves. Hmm. Of course, he also directed, uh, what, Music of the Heart. uh, I haven't seen uh, that. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And that one, uh, that one actually had an Academy Award nomination. Is that right? Wow. Meryl Streep, I believe, uh, was nominated for it. Uh, And that was a serious film about, uh, you know, about music and school and kids and all. Um, I don't think he ever got to make one about bird conservation, but that was, of course, <laughs> one of his big uh, passions in life, too. Uh, it's interesting, yeah, do you find that actually conservation lines up with
0: a lot of horror guys? Did you know that the the writer Robert Eichmann uh, was a big conservationist in England? I didn't. Yeah, he's, he's an interesting character. Uh, so but but related to this, uh, it, in order to get into kind of the space for talking about um, the science behind Serpent and the Rainbow today, I re- I've never seen Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs. So I watched it last night mm-hmm. and man, I wish I had seen that at a younger age. It um, it's kind of like the perfect
1: like intro to horror for a kid. It's mm-hmm. very much just like a dark fairy tale yeah there's you know there's more going on than meets the eye your parents are not who they seem yeah. There's a you know and there's a there's a gimp living in the basement you know that well, your standard stuff there's all kinds tale.
0: of crazy stuff in it but it, it's basically a kids film with like occasional over-the-top violence thrown into <laughs> it uh I, it's yeah similar I, structure right yeah. yeah yeah essentially i loved it um but yeah i hope that you know um I guess with his passing, that he gets a little bit more attention for some of the movies like that that he was really invested in. You know, that was one of the mm-hmm. ones that he wrote and directed
1: and kind of shepherded all the way along. That's the one that I, I seem to recall that uh, the mother and father in that are are supposedly patterned on um, Ronald and Nancy Reagan. So there's like some, <laughs> Is that there's right? some at least mild political. Um, uh, statement to be made. I could there. see that. I yeah. could see that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: fantastic out there. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Uh, e- you know, even if you're not into, you know, really gory horror movies, it's not particularly gruesome in that way. Mm-hmm. It's uh, especially by today's standards. I'd say it was it's about as scary as a modern day Doctor Who episode. Mm. Um But it is grim for sure. But um today we're going to talk about this movie that he came out with in 1988, and when I saw the trailer for this on actually like the commercial for it when I was a little kid, it the commercial alone scared the pants off of me. I was so terrified of this movie, and it's called The Serpent and the Rainbow. Oh, yes, and it's based on an academic book by a guy named Wade Davis, and so we thought. With Wes Craven passing away, we wanted to do some kind of tribute to him, but also the, the science behind Wade Davis's uh, anthropological look at Haitian society and Voodoo culture uh, is just fascinating. And there's interesting stuff going on with the, the biological and chemical science in there, but there's also some really interesting stuff going on with the battles in academia over this work as well.
1: Yeah, I mean just right off the bat, it's it may strike some people as weird. It certainly did me when I f- first read about it that you have an academic uh, publication and it's adapted into a horror movie and the title is the same. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. I mean that's uh and that's telling and we'll get into that. So, should we do like a breakdown of what this movie is about first? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let me see if I can if I can summarize this, and you help me out along. Okay, the way. I, it's been 15 years since I've seen it. Okay, saw it on TNT Monster Vision with uh, Joe Bob Briggs.
0: Oh, and... yeah. Well, I saw it more recently than that. I rewatched it when I was on Netflix last year. But uh, so, the Serpent and the Rainbow is a very loose fictional adaptation <laughs> of Wade Davis's trip to haiti to investigate what's known as zombie powder basically and the idea here was that um so that the idea was that a medical company supposedly approached wade davis about using said zombie powder as like almost like a anesthetic i guess when performing surgeries
1: yeah, and, and, uh, we have the details on that that we'll, we'll, we'll get into later, but yeah, yeah. It, it has potential medical, uh, um, uh, applications. And the film itself kind of goes way beyond that in that,
0: uh, the character who's supposed to be based on Wade Davis, I don't think they even call him that in the, in the movie. I think he has like a totally different name. He gets enmeshed in both the Haitian Revolution and this kind of, Like very stereotypical kind of culturally insensitive depiction of voodoo (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, in which people are being buried alive and then brought back from the dead as these
1: sort of mindless slaves. Yeah. I mean, especially in the time period, um, voodoo is and in Haitian culture in general is just rife for um, for exploitation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I. I instantly like I, think of James Bond. Was yes. It, um, the, uh, was it The Living Daylight? So yeah, like, I, I think it film?
0: was. Either that or Thunderball. But yeah, yeah, yeah the,
1: exactly. This is the, the era of Papa Shango Yeah, and, uh, the, the, the depictions of voodoo said, yeah.
0: culture that we grew up with were very insensitive compared yeah. to kind of, kind of what... I don't think a movie like that could get made today. Um, but I do... Still, just because of the time I grew up in, I sort of have this personal affinity for it because it scared me so badly. Right. Um, it really, I mean, again, I was, this came out in, what, 88? So mm-hmm. I was 11. Uh, I probably wasn't the target audience for this, but, <laughs> you know, uh it it really uh it got its hooks into me, you know? And I've yeah. always held it up as one of those movies over the years that can just... Even now, it's kind of silly when you rewatch it. The, the stuff isn't actually all that scary, but there's something about it that still resonates with yeah. me. Yeah.
1: And it was a major studio release. So even if you didn't see it in the theater and you weren't the target audience, you definitely saw the advertisements yeah. if you were a TV watching household. And if you went to the video store, it was a thousand feet yeah, tall. It was, on it the was wall. prominent. Yeah. So, okay, let's, you know, we've talked a lot about Wes
0: Craven. I know our audience is probably more interested in the science of this. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into that. So, first of all, we're stepping away from the movie here and we're talking more about Davis's work. He did a cultural ethnography of the sort of beliefs around Haitian culture and this zombie folklore. And we're talking about zombie without an E here. Z O M B I. That's how it's spelled in that culture. Um, let's, let's dive into that and then we can get into the research and kind of what he came up with. This is early eighties. I want to say 81, 82.
1: Here's an interesting uh, fact. Um, Long long before uh, Davis looked into this, um, actually, Zora Hurston, American folklorist, anthropologist, and author uh, of Their Eyes Were Watching God, okay. uh, in 1938, uh, after doing some work in uh, Haiti and in Jamaica, uh, she was uh, one of the first to suggest that there could be a material basis for zombies, for z- the zombie phenomena.
0: And so what's kind of interesting about that is that's before the zombie horror phenomenon really caught hold of america's interest in the when did white zombie come out oh, i am
1: not not really clear on the time but frame night of that the one.
0: living dead was the late 60s early mm-hmm. 70s that's the one that really yeah. uh,
1: put it in hyperdrive yeah
0: so this is she's kind of taking a look at
1: the reality of this beyond myth before it's really grabbed the cultural interest right Davis, on the other hand, he comes in well, well after it's uh, entrenched in our culture. Yeah,
0: in fact, I mean, I would I would say that it's arguable. Like, It's not like Davis exposed this culture and he was the first one to do it. And mm-hmm. people told him what was going on and sent him down there. He yeah. was funded by people. But um, basically the idea is that Haitian zombies aren't what we think of as zombies today, right? So if you're thinking Walking Dead, uh, the TV show out there, that's not what this is, Uh The way that it's considered in this culture is that they are, quote, the living dead, which is a little different. (laughs) I know it sounds the same at first, but they're undead slaves. And there's a certain kind of voodoo priest that I believe it's pronounced Bokur that can perform this ritual. And it's seen as a sort of sociological punishment, actually. Um, So in that religion, There's this concept, at least this is how Davis presents it, that human bodies contain two types of angels, is what he calls them. One is the big good angel, and the other is the little good angel. The little good angel is essentially the essence of our individuality, right? It's your, I guess, soul? Mm -hmm. Uh, And Davis actually, in his text, referred to it as, quote, the governing thought, memory, and sentiments of a person, However, if anything were to happen to that before you physically die, you might become a zombie. Mm -hmm. Uh, And supposedly this ritual uh, is the the voodoo priest taking the little good angel out of you and enslaving you as such.
1: Yeah, it it seems to definitely uh, play into just humans trying to figure out what's going on with cognition, Mm -hmm. Uh, what's going on. With identity uh, in cases where, say, um, you know, there's been an injury and an individual is clearly not in their own head. Like, what happened to the person that you were yeah. physically? You know, what's the link between the mind and the brain? Like, essentially, this is the voodoo uh, take on the mind-body problem. Absolutely. In fact, the idea is that when you die, the big good
0: angel is the one that goes to heaven. The little good angel actually, like, sticks around for a couple of days, uh, roughly three days, and as such, some relatives will sit by the graveside of their loved ones for that many days because they feel like they're still there and they, you know, need to be with them. That mm. part of their personality, the individual part of them.
1: And that definitely I can see where that would play into mourning for the dead, because you're, mm-hmm. you're stuck by this uh, dichotomy of that's the person that I loved and the person I still love. But they're not there. But it's still but I still feel this connection to this body. Exactly
0: right. And. Uh, and so what's really important about Davis's research is that it's a combination of looking at the biology that's going on here with this. What we're going to talk about is zombie powder, uh, as well as the cultural resonance that's here and how that plays into the society. So the first thing that's important to understand that he states is that becoming a zombie is a loss of individuality that is worse than death. So this is a punishment that they 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 use for breaking the, the largest taboos of their community. Right. It's a it's also seen as a form of social control. So maybe you're a criminal or maybe you're a rapist or something like that, something that is affecting the community. Right. And so the the voodoo priest subsequently enslaves you as such to take that problem away from the community.
1: Yeah, a, a lot of the the stuff that you you know seen a lot of Caribbean cultures and uh, and, in, and in also in the the Voodoo religion is that of course you have a mix of uh, of, of African belief systems mm-hmm. mingled with some Christian belief uh, systems, and uh, in Davis's follow up book uh, Passage of Darkness, yeah. the uh, ethnobiology of the Haitian zombie, he argues that yeah the Getting into what you just uh, just said, that it uh, it ties into a long history of secret societies uh, that stretch back to the earliest days of slavery. Societies that carried with them more of an emphasis on African beliefs, that carried with them uh, some of this uh, you know this folkloric uh, pharmaceutical knowledge, uh, and this was especially the case with escaped slaves such as uh, the Maroons uh, who lived. You know, deep in the mountains sort of had their own outsider culture that they established and that it's here, especially that you would see zombie powder used as a means of punishing mm-hmm. uh, individuals who who broke with tradition, broke the broke their, their laws. And and, of course, all punishment, all capital punishment is essentially symbolic. But the the symbology right. of this is very potent um, it's been an escaped slave culture. In the same way that you would hear
0: it argued in American culture that capital punishment is a deterrence, you could argue the same thing here, right? right. That you, the, the last thing that you would want to do is have your individuality taken away from you and be under the thrall of somebody else. Yeah. So subsequently that would keep you from doing bad things. So there's two things I want to note here before we go on. The first is that I think that Davis is a really fascinating individual because of this sort of cross disciplinary approach that he took to this study. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that that's part of what tweaked certain scholars the wrong way in the 80s and made them upset with him. And we'll talk about that as well. Uh, but I but I think that it's an interesting approach, and I'm glad that he did it to at least sort of set a standard for other people to do the same thing down the road, but maybe a little more carefully with their methodology. The second thing is that we have to say that all that stuff that we just mentioned about um, voodoo culture it has been heavily criticized. At least Davis's interpretation of it has been. Uh, as just being a complete misrepresentation, and that it's something that, as a person who just kind of came in and visited, uh, the culture for a number of years and then went and wrote this book, that he didn't necessarily understand all the complexities of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was, uh, he was a young buck jumping out into yeah. the world, and, uh, and a lot of the criticisms I was looking at, they, they often referred to him as an Indiana Jones, and not, yeah. not in a favorable light, saying that, like, here's a, here's this, Young rock star with a crazy hat. He's going out and he thinks he's doing important academic work, but he's not. He's just, you know, he's just, he's a little reckless, is, is the argument. Yeah. yeah. And based on, on what I was reading about his second book uh, that I mentioned, uh, The Passage, Passage of Darkness. Darkness. Yeah. He uh, he apparently calmed down a lot uh, by that point or refined himself. It came more in keeping with the expectations of uh, of his academic critics. Yeah, I I this
0: is a good opportunity to sort of get into a little bit more about like, what happened with Davis in the following years. I he's a fascinating individual. Uh, National Geographic has given him the title Explorer of the Millennium. That's a pretty awesome title. Yeah. Uh, so as, as, as you would expect from the title, he's still exploring, going all around the world. He's an ethnobotanist and an anthropologist. He's gone everywhere. Polynesia, Tibet. Uh, he, he just does tons of similar studies to this one that he started off with in Haiti. And in fact, my understanding is that he's been working on some kind of four part documentary for the last couple of years. And, uh, that showcases various cultures from around the world and sort of how, the, um, how human nature evolves in these different ways.
1: Yeah, ultimately, uh, even though the Indiana Jones thing was used as a as a, as a dig at him uh, early on, like, really, who else has? <laughs> He yeah, call he's the Jones. explorer of the yeah. millennium. Well, and,
0: and and that's the other thing, too. When I think about the Indiana Jones uh, application, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, remember those scenes in the Indiana Jones movies where he would, like, go back to the college and he would be in his stuffy suit and, like, about to teach class or whatever. Right. And all the students were fawning all over him. Mm-hmm. But, like, you get the sense that Davis doesn't really have that part. Davis doesn't, like, go back and, like, <laughs> climb into a tweed suit and hold office hours. Maybe he does. So originally, Davis was actually a Canadian firefighter, but then he moved on and went to Harvard University. And uh, while he was at Harvard studying, he would uh, – apparently, this is according to the research, he just often visit Columbia, the nation Columbia, <laughs> not the school, and uh, study cocaine and hallucinogens. So you get an idea of where his interests lie right away. I think this is like the late 70s. Uh, in 1975, this was when the sort of, quote-unquote, serpent in the rainbow storyline started to come together. He was funded by something that was called the Zombie Project. That's its real title. Yeah. Uh, via the Botanical Museum at Harvard and the American uh, sorry, the American National Science Foundation, and there were some others in there as well. Um, I think if I remember correctly from reading some of the research, that he might have had some private interests in there as well. Um, basically, the idea is like what we said earlier, they wanted him to go and find out what was up with this zombie powder so that they could potentially use it to revolutionize surgery. So Davis goes down there and let's see. So he first gets funded in 75 and he publicly hypothesizes about zombies in 83. So he's down there for roughly eight years back and forth, kind of doing research, understanding the culture. Uh, And it's in 83 that he publishes something uh, and says, you know what? This zombie thing, it's a real thing. It's not just a myth. And it can be explained both by science and cultural analysis. And this is Davis's idea of how it works. This is how he broke it down, essentially. So it starts off with what we just talked about, the cultural belief in zombies as part of the culture, right? You have Mm -hmm. to be in that culture and truly believe. You have to have faith
1: that that will work, and that's how society is run. Yeah, this ties into a lot of what we've uh, mentioned before about uh, paranormal experience. Um, Anyone can have these sort of, these strange hallucination experiences or or some sort of altered state of uh, perception. But then how, does, how do you make sense of it? And that's where you have to turn to your whatever cultural scripts are available. Yeah. So like the individual who sees lights in the woods, depending on where you are in time, where you are in the world, you might interpret those as fairies, as aliens, mm-hmm. as ghosts, as um, or as just people with flashlights looking for you in the woods. Right. It's whatever narrative is available to right. you to understand it. That's what
0: culture is, essentially. Yeah. It's how we understand the world. Yeah. So... Let's put put yourself in that situation then. You're a part of that culture and you have complete faith that voodoo priests have the ability to make zombies or make you uh, the living dead. Mm-hmm. All right. Then here comes the biological factor. So Davis hypothesized that victims were given two types of powder. Uh, the first he called the before powder, and this was what rendered the victims helpless and paralyzed them so they seemed lifeless, okay? So the idea here is that, like, they're given this powder, and it seems like they just died. Like, their their uh, body slows to a crawl, and uh, their their neighbors all think, and family think, oh, this person just passed away, right? Davis collected eight samples of this particular powder, and he claims that they all contained the following ingredients. Human remains, tree frogs, worms, toads, and the last, and this is a really important one, mm-hmm. pufferfish. Yeah, I feel like the rest of the stuff is more or less garnish. Uh- <laughs> it's really the pufferfish, I think. Um, and the reason why is because puffer fish contains something that's called tetrodotoxin. Uh, if you've ever had Japanese fugu fish, have you ever had that before? I have not, but I've watched The Simpsons, so uh, oh, it they do the it idea. on there. Yeah, yeah, I've seen video of uh, people, you know, like doing it as kind of a dare thing before, but it's a, apparently cuisine that's pre- prepared. Uh, this fish also has tetrodotoxin in it, and when you eat it, it provides a warm, euphoric sensation, but sometimes it can result in mild paralysis, and I think sometimes it's even worse, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a neurotoxin, yeah. and uh, researchers have uh, looked to it as a potential pain management drug to aid in chemotherapy, mm-hmm. according to a 2013 study from uh, John Thewer Cancer Center. Uh, by blocking the sodium channels, tetrodotoxin limits the conduction of pain signals to the central nervous system, offering relief from pain related to damage caused by chemotherapy. And and so uh, yeah, it's it's making you feel less. It's making you feel mm-hmm. like you're you're fading yeah. out
0: of this world. It and, numbs your senses. Yeah. And so I think Davis's hypothesis was that given enough of this stuff, but in the appropriate doses, that you would
1: appear to be dead but not actually die. Yeah, and like fact, it's, it's pretty deadly in the pufferfish because uh, like, yeah. it's, it's used as a deterrent against predators. Uh, in that uh, study that I was uh, just citing, uh, they said it was just a fraction of the dosage that you would get from eating a pufferfish. Uh-huh. So just to show you how powerful, just a, just a, a small amount of it would be uh, potentially enough to, uh, to dull the pain. And
0: so this is an interesting little side note from one of the readings I did about Davis, but apparently one of his colleagues was the one who pointed this out to him and said, have you ever read the end of uh, the James Bond novel, Dr. No? And Davis was like, no, I haven't. And he said, oh, well, you know, uh, spoilers for Dr. No, which is what, like 50, 60 years old, but, um, James Bond gets stabbed with a blade that's coated in tetrodotoxin. and it huh. seems like he dies, but in fact, the tetrodotoxin just makes it seems like, makes it seem like
1: he, uh, he's dead when he's actually just paralyzed. The main thing I remember from reading that book is that, uh, Bond fights the giant squid at the end, which I always level anytime anyone, uh, Anyone may, charges that a Bond film gets a little too silly uh-huh. to say, hey, in the, in the original Dr. No book, he fights a giant. Well, spin, we so. certainly
0: <laughs> should do some science of James Bond down the road. Maybe when, uh, what is it, Spectre? Maybe when Spectre uh, yeah. rolls out. Uh, okay. So that's the before powder in Davis's theory here. Mm-hmm. The after powder, uh, he never collected any of it. He doesn't know what's in it. But he, from his uh, cultural studies, believes that it's out there. And his belief is that it contains Datura. Now, Datura uh, also is commonly known as the zombie's cucumber. Okay. And uh, apparently this is something that was used in West Africa uh, to induce stupors, violent hallucinations, and sometimes death. And the idea is that um, slaves brought it over from Africa to Haiti and that Datura was now grown there. And he saw it as being something that was
1: uh, you know, also used to sort of uh, continue this appearance of death. Yeah, detura has been used uh, for centuries in uh, various cultures as, as both a poison and a hallucinogen. Uh, and detura intoxication typically produces delirium. Uh, so we're looking at a complete inability to differentiate reality from fantasy, and that's that's frank delirium as uh, as, a, as a contrasted to just typical hallucination. Um, it can cause hyperthermia. It can cause excessive heart rate, bizarre, possibly violent behavior, and... Um, It can also uh, result in a painful photophobia that can last several days. And pronounced amnesia is also another um, uh, commonly cited effect. So you can Mm. easily see how all of these uh, could play into the experience of being the walking enslaved dead
0: right exactly so you've got the cultural uh sort of base Mm -hmm. to this recipe and then you add in the tetrodotoxin which paralyzes you and then you throw in the Datura aspect which could potentially uh be a strong enough hallucinogen to to really confuse you Mm -hmm. um have you ever played the fallout video games before Mm that i think you can get Datura in that as like an ingredient that you use to make like um like a uh some kind of healing recipe or okay. something like that. But I, if I remember correctly, it also kind of makes you have hallucinations. Yeah.
1: I remember bit. getting into the weeds a bit, uh, on the whole, uh, recipes for things. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. It's incredibly complicated,
0: but they've, somebody over there has done their research. Uh, so yeah, uh, people criticize Davis's research though. They say this is faulty and here's why. Uh, first of all, this guy was probably talking to some unreliable subjects while he was over there. People who are taking advantage of, of his uh, lack of knowledge and probably spinning stories for him mm-hmm. or just looking for media attention.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's also exploring something that is essentially magic and fantasy that's tied up in mythology and folklore. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of gray area there between reality and fantasy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And there was a really uh, kind of almost mean-spirited accusation that his data was falsified about Mm -hmm. the tetrodotoxin and that he had purposefully uh, exaggerated the levels of tetrodotoxin that were found in the powders that he brought back from Haiti and in some cases might, might might've even lied. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, he obviously uh, rejects those claims and uh you know, it's never been proven or anything. But there's been studies since on, on this particular phenomenon, these powders, and whether or not they have, you know, particular effects that could help in medicine. So I don't know necessarily that I buy that he made up the tetrodotoxin stuff.
1: Yeah, that seems maybe going a, a bit far, especially considering, you know, where his career has gone since then. Like, this doesn't strike me as a it's a guy who would have uh, intentionally done that.
0: Yeah. So, like I said, there, there's been other studies. They're pretty interesting. They break down all of the various components that are in the powders and what they could do. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, one of the studies that I read that took a very measured look at these components, also discounted the whole zombification aspect. They said this is either a combination of... Um, mistaken identity, in which like somebody actually dies, and then they think they see like their cousin, but it's not them, or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, or just plain mental illness, and yeah. that they just their their cultural understanding of mental illness is is different than ours, and they don't realize how it's affecting this
1: person. But so far, we don't have that uh, really conclusive study where someone rounds up a bunch of people who believe in zombies and then just poisons the hell out of them. to see What happens? <laughs> One of the things that I'm curious about is I
0: have to admit that, you know, I I don't have a deep uh, understanding of Haitian culture. So I'm curious if now, almost 40 years later, if a lot of these cultural
1: uh, touchstones still hold resonance. And indeed, and to what extent has the balance between uh, traditional folkloric beliefs and Catholicism shifted? Um, Yeah, it would be interesting to see a a, a modern uh, revisitation of this topic.
0: Yeah, I, I think it would be interesting as well. I suspect given the stigma around it mm-hmm. that most graduate students are going to be advised to avoid it yes. uh, by their, by their, you know, faculty uh, mentors. But, um, you know, who knows? Maybe Davis will uh, uh, influence somebody else to go do a similar study. Right now, he's put that zombie thing behind him. He's mainly known as an ecological campaigner. He's sponsored by National Geographic. So you actually tend to see, like, articles or, or kind of essays and stuff like that by him in in Nat Geo.
1: Yeah, he's done a number of TED Talks. Yeah. So he's, uh,
0: he's out there. He travels around. Uh, And like I said earlier, he's working on this multi-part documentary about the diversity of cultures and human belief in the world, which I think could be amazing. I I actually wonder, because the thing I read about said this in like 2013. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if it's since been finished and I just missed it. So if it's out there and you've seen it, let us know, because I'd love to see it. Indeed. So, all right. So we've laid out sort of the Wade Davis scientific explanation for the serpent in the rainbow. How to make a zombie? Here's your formula, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and we're we're doing this in honor of Wes Craven. Uh, I love that movie. Uh, he passed away this week, and so this is sort of in memoriam to him. So let's talk about how this movie was made.
1: Yeah, it's a uh, god. It's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. It's hard to find like any real just. Definitive sources on it, because yeah. uh, when you get into the you know the troubled history of various films, unless you have like a clear cut documentary case, such as with Apocalypse Now, mm. there's a, just a lot of uh, you know almost its own folklore regarding what happened and what went wrong and what eventually went right, and it is worth mentioning that ultimately like this film worked because it was um, budgeted at 10 million though it seems to have come in around a, about a 7 million in the end <laughs> you never hear that anymore yeah. right now i'm <laughs> not sure if that was because of budget cuts uh-huh. or craven just being really uh you know on his game yeah i suspect budget cuts uh and it was uh it, but even then it was set to be his biggest film to date so this was yeah. this was a big deal for craven and this is after nightmare on elm street yeah so my two uh, key sources here there's a book uh, titled West Craven the Art of Horror by John Kenneth and the other source is uh Joe Bob Briggs who uh, awesome. who shared a lot <laughs> who, of uh... who introduced you to the movie in the first yeah, place Yeah yeah uh, and actually he, he shared a lot of this uh the, 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 the well just say, say the mythology of the the making of this film on uh, Monster Vision on TNT back in the uh this was the late 90s i believe and he has all the um, the scripts for those available on his website which we'll link to on the landing page for this episode but he, uh, he laid it out like this. So you have this guy, David Ladd, and he acquires the rights to Davis's book. Okay, and he shows it to, to Wes, and Wes Craven loves it. Uh, yeah. you know, and not only does he decide, decide that he wants to take the gig, he also wants to actually travel to Haiti and make it. Mm. Even though, um, uh, according to Briggs, uh, no American movie had been filmed within the borders of Haiti yet. Now, if uh,
0: my understanding is correct, at that time, Haiti was in the middle of a civil war. I believe so, yeah. Okay. So,
1: I mean, it was it was not a play. When, when when Craven said this, a lot of people were like, I don't know if you really want to shoot in Haiti. Yeah. Why don't you shoot in the Dominican Republic? And he said, no, we're going for the. I'm in love with the material. I want to make it authentic and I care <laughs> about it. Let's go to Haiti and do it. All right. I'd like to pause right there. Just mm-hmm. I love this
0: movie, but I don't know that authentic <laughs> is how I would describe its depiction of Haiti. Mm-hmm. There's some pretty over-the-top uh, cartoonish depictions of the
1: culture over there. Uh, but okay, and so they go to Haiti and um, and it's 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 apparently just a, a kind of a, a troubled shoot shoot from the get-go because the the crew is constantly either sick from food poisoning and various uh-huh. problems with food and water uh, or they're just they're dealing with just extreme heat so the environmental concerns are are pretty rough it's, okay. a, it's, it's environmentally a pretty rough shoot yeah and then they're kind of sandwiched between the Haitian military and the locals for most of it. And they're Mm -hmm. trying to to use the locals. There's a scene there, I believe it's the opening scene, with a a big funeral procession. Yeah. They used 2,000 extras, Haitian extras.
0: That scene is terrifying. That's the scene that sticks with me the most
1: out of anything in that movie. (laughs) We'll see it, then the authenticity paid off. Yeah. But they also, of course, had to pay off the extras. Sure. And um, according to Briggs, one of the, the problems here is that you're not dealing with one agent for all 2,000 of these individuals. Mm. There are various representatives. So this guy here, he represents 50 of the the extras. This guy represents 100. And all of these different representatives keep trying to renegotiate the terms, especially (laughs) as the the shoot uh, continues and they realize, hey, these guys are going to leave. Let's see if we can, you know. Get, make the most out of this because it's a paying gig, but it's also it's, it's going to go away.
0: Sure, and I would imagine that bartering is probably a natural part of that culture too.
1: Yeah, I would imagine so. So they, um, so each time they bring these up, uh, the representatives bring this up and occasionally threaten strikes. Um, the producers raise their their pay a little bit to keep them happy. Okay, um, and then meanwhile, the army is saying the Haitian army is saying, "Hey, we can send in troops," but Craven and Company really don't like that idea because. Right. It's already kind of a hostile situation. The last thing you need is, you know, potential bloodbath. Yeah, exactly.
0: So... Yeah, for all the, like, you know, uh, uh, mothers in the 80s and 90s who are against Wes Craven and being a horrible influence on their children, I think uh, that was probably a wise decision on his part. He wasn't as, uh, uh, I guess, um, interested in capturing, you know, violence for violence's
1: sake. Right, yeah. And so... They turn it on the army. They they continue to deal with the, the, these various leaders that are hitting them up for, for more cash. And then one day the leaders come to the production office and they say they want more money that night or they're going to riot. Wow. And so this apparently escalates into like a scene where uh, David Ladd, uh, the guy acquired the rights and mm-hmm. is serving as producer on this. He's standing on top of a car talking to, to 2,000 of these uh, individuals with a bullhorn. Uh, and they all have rocks ready if oh. need be, to pummel him with. And he's wow. And he's urging them not to riot. He promised them that the money will, will be there. And that's part of the problem, too. They don't have the money. They're having to ship the money in from Miami so that they can pay off everybody. Um, and meanwhile, they're, saying, they're realizing, all right, we've been here a month. This is not working. Let's get out. So they're trying to get everybody out of the country to head to the Dominican Republic okay. to finish the remaining three months of, of shooting. Yeah. Um, so do you think that, it, this was just a money issue, or do you think
0: that the Haitian extras that were involved in this film had any sense of the kind of exploitation their culture is receiving at the hands of this film?
1: I have a feeling it is just kind of an unbalanced situation. Uh, I mean, that may yeah. have played into it, yeah. but I, I get the in, in, I get the impression it was more of a yeah, an unbalanced situation with with some some problems with representation on yeah. the, the part of the uh, the locals uh, and intention, but obviously between the government uh, and uh, the Haitian people. Certainly, okay. So the, they get most everybody out, but three people had to stay in the production office, essentially just barricaded in there <sighs> until uh, every last villager was paid. Okay, and even weirder, and this is like like. I'll say that this is doubly alleged, okay. but according to John Kenneth, um, Craven was nearly forced to drink pig's blood in a voodoo <laughs> ceremony to appease the rioting extras. I don't know if I believe that. Yeah. I could not find an- another source to even mention that, and Joe Bob didn't mention it on Monster Vision. Yeah. So... I have my doubts, but it, it
0: sounds a bit over the top. You'd think that would be a story that Wes Craven would tout as well, you know, yeah. like something he would definitely want to include on the DVD extras yeah. or something.
1: <laughs> also, it seems like their their main concern was, hey, we want to be paid for yeah. our work, not so much. I think the director should drink pig blood. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they get out of Haiti. They head to the Dominican Republic. And I also want to point out that also allegedly you had four individuals who... Um, who had problems with curses or potential, um, insanity. Like one guy had to be sent back to the States apparently and was raving paranoid for uh, a few days. These were American production members? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And of course, I don't know to what extent that's just like, you got food poisoning and you're yeah. in a, you know, you're in a, a different culture. Yeah, or you're in
0: a super stressful situation yeah, and hot. you just kind of snap.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And Craven uh, has apparently claimed before that uh, one of the local priests put a curse on him. But, again, I don't know to what extent that's just uh Yeah, that's you – know, that, that, how many so. horror movies have you heard that about? I'm
0: sure uh, – what's about to come out there, Green Inferno with from, by Eli, Eli Roth? Yeah. that That's a, a movie that looks like it has a very similar but probably modern treatment of uh, – of another culture. And I wouldn't be surprised if Eli Roth tells people
1: that he was cursed by somebody. While he was I, I would not be that. surprised if he has not been cursed by a, by some sort of a voodoo priest in the past, yeah. even before he did this. Yeah. I mean, thumbs up to that, that voodoo priest. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but anyway, so various, uh, issues in Haiti. And then they finally get to, uh, the Dominican Republic. And when, first of all, they arrive there and the archbishop shuts down the production for three days because he says it's, he decided it was sacrilegious to make this kind of a movie on Easter weekend, mm, mm-hmm. and then uh, like a final blow, one of the Dominican production assistants filed a lawsuit against the producers. And under Dominican law at the time, if a lawsuit was filed against a foreigner, they arrested the foreigner and they went to jail till the case went to trial. So the producers were put under essentially house arrest, <sighs> and wow, according to Joe Bob, uh, had to um, spread a little cash to actually get out of the situation.
0: Now you see why people want to film in Atlanta so badly. Yeah. It's, it's not just the tax breaks. There's no uh, military
1: tribunals uh, <laughs> putting you under house arrest. I mean, and, you know, he didn't have to, Allegedly, he had a, a good crew. He didn't have to, to deal with, like, insane Marlon Brando or anything. Yeah. Like this. So yeah. You, you hear stories like this, or you watch um, Heart of Darkness, the documentary about Apocalypse Now. Right. And it makes me wonder, like, why does anybody try and make a film? Because you're going to have to go through this horrendous process yeah. and, and all in an attempt to make some sort of uh, product that resembles your original intention. Yeah, it's right. Exactly. It's always a matter of compromise. Yeah,
0: I, I, that is fascinating. Uh, I have to just imagine that Craven was so passionate about the material. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder, too, if Wade Davis was even part of the production. Like if he was on set at all, I don't think he was. And I know that he distanced himself from the movie when it came out, you know, mm-hmm. obviously because there's uh, spoilers for Serpent and the Rainbow, but I believe the movie ends with his character summoning like a panther spirit or something <laughs> like that to beat the voodoo shaman that uh, he's fighting. I, I don't
1: even remember remember that. Oh, yeah.
0: There's some real silly mm-hmm. stuff that goes on in there uh, that is clearly has nothing to do with Davis's uh, scientific and
1: <laughs> anthropological. Logic studies of Haiti. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it: the serpent and the rainbow, zombie powder, uh, a troubled production history, and uh, you know our. Yeah, so I would
0: love to hear from you, the listeners. Let us know, you know, did Wes Craven have a particular impact on on your viewing, on your childhood, maybe as he did ours? Or uh, is there something about the story behind The Serpent and the Rainbow that you know of that we missed? I know that there's a lot more out there. Regarding Davis's research and research that's been done since then on these particular powders, so I'm curious if anybody has new information for us that we could share in a future listener mail episode.
1: Yeah, and should we do an episode on the Hills Have Eyes? Oh, oh no. yeah. that sounds good. <laughs> that's another one where um, I enjoyed the remake uh, and wasn't too crazy about the original.
0: I think he was involved in the remake. Yeah, yeah, he produced it. Yeah, yeah.
1: and uh, I thought that it was pretty solid. So, there you have it. Hey, as usual, you can always check us out at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find uh, the landing page for this episode with uh, all those links we mentioned, uh, links to the, some of the studies as well. Uh, you'll find uh, videos, you'll find blog posts, as well as links out to our various social media accounts. Right. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Tumblr,
0: and Facebook, and on all those channels, we are Blow the Mind, or you can just write to us the old fashioned way at Blow the mind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Yeah.